101.5 WHMP. And good afternoon, and thank you for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Hello, Dan Torres. What's happening, Buzzy? Ready for Friday? I, I'm always ready for Friday. Friday, yeah, Friday weekend. is always a good day. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, it is. And today I'm particularly excited about our guest uh, in the first uh, portion and the second portion of of the program. But yes, I'm looking forward to this weekend. We've got lots of plans and we're we're prepping. We have now, uh, Dan, I think I told you, we have a now four-day-old granddaughter. Congratulations. So we're moving. Our, it's, talk about a movable feast. Thanksgiving yeah. is going to Brooklyn instead of being to. up in Asheville. Of course. Um, that anyway, must be exciting, huh? Family getting exciting. bigger. Yeah, family's getting bigger, and all our other grandchildren are going to convene in Brooklyn, and uh, we're going to have a, a grand old time. That sounds like a lot of fun. Enjoy. Right. So that and 13-year-old called me this morning before she ran to school and said, will you please take me to see Wakanda forever while we're down here? <laughs> so I guess we're going to do that. You can't say no to that, Buzz. Sorry. You can't say no to anything that they have. So. Yeah. Anyway, but I'm I'm very excited. This, uh, folks, you might remember that it was only uh, uh, a little more than a month ago that we celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day on October 11th. Uh, you might recall that um, Columbus Day uh, now had a companion day because last year, 2021, President Biden formally commemorated Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, and way back, 30 years before that, in 1990, President George H.W. Bush had approved a joint resolution of Congress designating November as the first, what was then called National American Indian Heritage Month, is what November is. Uh, we now call it Native American Heritage Month. And I can't think of another person locally, other than somebody who has, in fact, of, uh, of uh, indigenous heritage, uh, personally, um, to better um, help us celebrate and understand the current state of the uh, United States' relationship with the various peoples that we call indigenous descendants, then Peter DeRico, the Professor Emeritus of Legal Studies at our own University of Massachusetts here in Amherst. Um, and Peter DeRico is also an attorney who has litigated indigenous land and fishing rights, as well as uh, native spiritual freedom rights in prisons and uh, a number of other case, kinds of native cases. So, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Buzz. It's good to talk to you. Great to talk to you. But before we go any further, you have a new book. Yes. It's Federal uh, Anti-Indian Law, the, Re yep. the Legal Entrapment of Indigenous People. It comes out from Prager, uh, which is part of ABC Clio Press. It's a it's a good press, and I'm happy about that. They've done a great job with it. The book is kind of a culmination of 50 years. It's not kind of. It is a culmination of 50 years of work when I started as a staff attorney uh, with Navajo Legal Services. It's called Deneba Ina Nahilna Beagaratahe that uh, turned me around, and my whole perspective toward law uh, shifted as what my perspective toward life shifted. I began to realize that living among non-Western people uh, who were here longer than America has even been imagined uh, said something to me about how to live. And so I, my own work with Native issues, Indigenous peoples, uh, it has been something that's been a great benefit to me. It's, I didn't go into this with some kind of, you know, I wear the white hat, I'm the good guy. I go into it, you know, learning and gaining as much as I'm giving in the litigation that I do. So, what do you? Yeah, what do you uh, I, I, I didn't expect to go there, but I'm so glad that you raised that. What do you mean, learning about living? You well, uh, okay. So, uh, an early memory uh, is the first ever, uh, not the first ever uh, board meeting, but for me, the first board meeting that I went to of the organization uh, out there was in Window Rock, and an elderly uh, Navajo man was the president of the board. And after the meeting, he came up to me and he said, "You know." Uh, uh, as, as we were getting ready to meet, I saw you run in when the uh, rain shower came down. It was that time of year when sort of every afternoon there's a little bit of rain. And he said, uh, you know, next time that it's raining and you're inside, which I want you to go outside. So it was kind of startling to me, but it was very obvious what he was saying was, you know, my attitude toward rain was, you know, something to avoid. And particularly when you live in the desert, uh, rain is not something to avoid. And so it was, um, you know, my relationship to to what people call the environment, which is, includes all of the, our relations, as the Lakota say, 
shifted, uh, starting right at that early moment when I realized that this is a different view. This, this guy is making me aware of who I am, what am I doing, just in what I think of as a very ordinary thing, almost instinctive uh, behavior. So that it was many things piled on top of that, that uh, and continued. When I came back out to the east and met Slow Turtle, Wampanoag, uh, Mashpee Wampanoag medicine person, uh, just learning and learning. And Philip Deere, Muskogee Creek man, and Corbin Harney, Western Shoshone, um, that, that kind of connection has just been a tremendous benefit to me and has really led to my understanding, which is also based on my own experience, that what is normally called federal Indian law is actually federal anti-Indian law, which is the title of the book. The title says my entire perspective, and in the book I take the whole field apart, piece by piece, the various doctrines and cases, some of which are familiar probably to people listening now. They don't have to be lawyers. They probably heard that, oh, the U.S. has a trust responsibility for Native peoples. Well, when you unpack the cases that detail that, you realize that it's not, it has nothing to do with ordinary trust law. You're a lawyer. You understand what trust law is, and you understand the rules that govern the um, trustee in relation to the beneficiary, and you understand that when a be- uh, trustee screws up, beneficiary goes to court and uh, can go to court anyway. And uh, that in uh, so-called federal Indian law, the fa- federal anti-Indian law, uh, guess what? The trustee and the court are the same. The U.S. is the trustee, and the U.S. is also judging whether it met its obligations. And the Supreme Court has made very clear that uh, from the perspective of the U.S. legal system, it has total control. They call it plenary power over Native peoples. And I think that as we talk about uh, the the recognition, the awareness, you're talking about Indigenous Peoples Day, which is certainly a, a better term than Native American or American Indian. People quibble about these terms as if they're really significant. John Trudell, Lakota man, um, probably a lot of people have heard of him. He said they change our name and keep treating us the same. Mm. So the, uh, the, the idea that there's some awareness. Oh, yeah, there's something there. There's People know there's a history, there's an issue, there's a problem. Whether you think that, you know, the Columbus Day should be a holiday or not, you know that there's something a little bit screwed up about somebody coming somewhere and saying, oh, I've discovered this, it's mine, when there's already people living there. And so uh, what I wanted to do with the book is make the the critique of the field be accessible to ordinary readers, and I've had a lot of good feedback that, from people who are not lawyers who say that I succeeded in doing that. We are talking with professor and attorney Peter Dorico, um, long time. He's an emeritus from the Legal Studies Department at UMass, and he is a litigator uh, and was staff attorney at the Navajo Legal Services. So this book that you've just authored that you're telling us about federal anti-Indian law has a colon and then says the legal entrapment of indigenous people. How can yeah. we how can we free them from this entrapment? What do well, you yeah. argue should happen? Well, I think uh, there's um, let me let me give a couple of examples here. Uh, that, well, let me actually be quite explicit without talking in legalese. Uh, the first thing to do is to quit doing certain things. Uh, quit pretending that uh, the uh, issues are civil rights issues. Uh, you know, the, the familiar uh, kind of acronym you hear now, BIPOC, B-I, Black Indigenous People of Color, is a complete confusion. Uh, the indigenous legal issues are not in civil rights. A civil rights issue, as, as you as an attorney understand, a civil rights issue has to do with equality under the Constitution, that all people who are citizens should be treated equally. That's a constitutional uh, equality uh, that's, that people who are who are citizens under that constitution uh, are protected by or should be protected by. When we talk about indigenous peoples, we're not talking about individuals. We're not talking about separate individuals who are claiming civil rights. We're talking about nations of peoples. And when you when you use the word peoples, you're talking about something that has standing in international law. A people is uh, an entity in itself. It's not just a collection of individuals. And so those issues are not under the Constitution. The Supreme Court has acknowledged that. Even uh, Scalia, who was one of the people who had very little patience for these issues, acknowledged that 
the, the Native nations were not party to the Constitution. The only part of the Constitution that directly applies to Native people would be the, the Supremacy Clause, where it says that treaties are part of the supreme law of the land. And so that means if you follow the Constitution, the only thing the United States has in relation to indigenous peoples is not any power over them. It has the ability to make agreements with them. And over the course of the history of the country, it has made many of those agreements. And as people often point out, there's not a one of them that hasn't been violated in one way or another. Um, today, for example, I don't mean literally today, but now in the news, uh, the Cherokee uh, people are... Uh, reviving a part of the treaty that was made with, or one of the treaties made with the Cherokee uh, a couple hundred years ago now that said that the Cherokee had a right to send a representative to Congress to be sure that Congress could understand uh, Cherokee positions on issues that might affect them. That's never been fulfilled, and they're asking for that to be fulfilled now. And what it would mean, it would be a clear example of what I'm talking about, that the Cherokee representative would represent the Cherokee nation. It would be something different from civil rights. You don't have a representative in Congress for uh, particular subgroups of the population. So that's the kind of thing when you say the next steps, it would be begin to understand that there's a difference between indigenous people's legal issues and ordinary civil rights, that the particular difference is the treaty obligation and that, that once that is put on a different footing, you're, we're going to be moving in a different direction. Uh, can I add one more thing here? Please do. It's not a liberal conservative issue. Neil Gorsuch is the judge most clearly understanding of what treaty rights are all about, and he's considered to be conservative. The mo one of the most liberal judges in the history of the court was Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she had no qualms in, in 2005 of knocking down an Oneida lawsuit by saying that the Oneida did not have ownership of their land after the coming of the white man, who by discovery took title. And that right there is the goes right loops right back to the notion of Columbus as the discoverer. And that has been embraced from John Marshall in 1823 on forward through Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 2005, and even more recent than that. Gorsuch has himself not challenged that, but he has tried to sidestep the issue. Excuse me, sidestep the issue uh, in ways that allow him to write opinions that are favorable to upholding treaties. It's so interesting when you talk about treaties. There are, you know, what I've learned is there's self-executing treaties. There's those treaties. There's agreements that a president could enter into with a, another nation. And shake of a hand is worth about as much as the next election is worth. And that is the next, the succeeding president could then unshake that hand and eliminate that agreement. However, a self-executing treaty, one that has passed uh, with the advice and consent of the Senate by a two-thirds vote of the Senate, not the Congress, but the Senate, um, then has a different kind of force of treaties. And forgive my ignorance, most of the treaties that we have with Native American nations are those self-executing treatments, or are those just simple agreements? Nope, those are real treaties, what you're calling self-executing treaties, done with the advice and consent of the Senate. And they're all, there's a, Kapler is the name of the guy who authored the, uh, or put together the collection called Kapler's uh, Treaties. And uh, they're available, you can read them, uh, they're easily available online nowadays. And you can see, here's one after the other, what was promised, what was uh, agreed to what was passed by the Senate and so on and so forth. So uh, yes, I'm, these are serious treaties. Yeah. Well, has someone born in this country and a, a Caucasian in this country and someone who likes to think of himself as uh, uh, completely dedicated to fairness. Um, I'm bowing my head just listening to you, Peter Drico. We are talking with Peter Drico. We're going to take a break. His book, Federal Anti-Indian Law, Legal Entrapment of Indigenous People. Now here we are in uh, Native American Heritage Month, and it's a chance for us to talk in greater detail with Peter about what we have wrought and what should be done about it. We're going to take a break. Just a couple minutes. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. 
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. It happens all over Massachusetts. Anytime I choose. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSP Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSP Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Monitoring your credit score and report is an important tool in protecting your finances and can help you identify errors and prevent fraud. Our GSB Credit Center is just one of the great benefits that comes free with both our free online banking and our free mobile app. And with the GSB mobile app, you can check your score and access your credit report free anytime and from anywhere using your mobile device. And checking your credit report at the GSB Credit Center will not affect your credit score. Sign up today at any of our offices or online. Greenfield Savings Bank. Greenfieldsavings.com. Member FDIC. Member DIF. Mobile carrier charges may apply. Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the afternoon buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And it's a pleasure to continue our conversation with Peter DeRigo uh, now during November, which is uh, Native American History Month. And um, we're talking to somebody who has spent a substantial amount of the last half century advocating for Native rights uh, as an attorney as an educator uh, at UMass um, in the Legal Studies Department. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, it, it gets a little bit um, uh, legalistic if we go too far into it, but you litigated a case with our own Bob Doyle, Robert Doyle of Ashfield, a, a dear friend who passed away this year, who also was committed to um, a notion of fairness as it pertains to our Native American brothers and sisters. And you litigated U.S. versus Dan. Could you tell us a little bit about it and what it stands for and why it should discuss anybody who listens to it? Um, first, Buzz, let me just say uh, we didn't litigate U.S. v. Dan. We litigated some challenges uh, subsequent to U.S. v. Dan. We represented and worked with the, uh, Chief Raymond Yao of the Western Shoshone National uh, Council. And Bob and I had some really wonderful and amazing uh, trips out there. Uh, traveling among Western Shoshone people, actually camping out in the mountains in Nevada with them. So it wasn't all just courtroom work. Uh, but the U.S. v. Dan case, the, in a nutshell, what, what the Supreme Court said and what our clients were challenging, the Supreme Court said that the U.S. had uh, paid the Western Shoshone for their land, uh, and the Western Shoshone had refused to accept the money and said, no, we're not, the land is not available to you for any amount of money. And the Ninth Circuit upheld the Western Shoshone position, said, yeah, you know, this is still an open issue, still ha hasn't really been litigated. Supreme Court closed the door, said, well, here's the way it works. The trust, and you remember a few minutes ago, I said what a, an abuse of the word trust it is. The trust doctrine in the U.S. law for Native people says that when the U.S. paid the Western Shoshone because it owed them money because it took their land, 
and the Weshenshoni refused, the U.S. put on its other hat as trustee and accepted the money on their behalf. And that ended the story, and that ended the chance of litigation. That, believe it or not, is what the U.S. v. Dan case said. So we were litigating, saying that that's an abuse of the trust doctrine. There isn't any possibility that trust actually can work that way. Um, the Western Shoshone were uh, still where they were, had been there forever, et cetera, et cetera. So th- that, that litigation derailed the process for a while, but as you know, can expect, the Supreme Court having spoken, uh, the lower court said, well, we're just we're bound to do this. You know, this is what the Supreme Court said, that the U.S. can wear two hats and it can uh, take money that it owes to you and accept it on your behalf. And it's a done deal. Better call it a mistrust. Yeah, exactly. Doctrine. Exactly. I call it the untrustworthy trust doctrine. If I had <laughs> talked to you earlier, I would have called it the doctrine of mistrust. <laughs> I, I think that that's probably well put. So uh, in terms of the new book, tell us where people can find federal anti-Indian law. um, Well, you know, the uh, Amazon, as usual, carries all kind of stuff, but they've been running out of stock on it, uh, which I guess is a good sign. But I have found the best success is just ordering direct from the publisher, Prager, P-R-A-E-G-E-R. It's part of the ABC Clio, C-L-I-O, publishing group. And so if you just look for federal anti-Indian law at Prager, You'll come up with a uh, page where you can order it direct from the publisher. You could also, uh, libraries, some libraries uh, around here already have it. And I don't know about bookstores. Prager is a heavy library-oriented marketer, um, so I, I really don't know. I'm not close enough to the distribution process to know about bookstores. But Prager, federal anti-Indian law, direct purchase, and you'll get it in a few days. And the author is Peter Dorico, and you got to tell people how to spell Dorico. Dorico, okay, it's a, to do it right, it's a small d, apostrophe, capital E, R-R-I-C-O, Dorico. It's, uh, I'm, my father was born in Italy, so I'm, I, have, uh, I have my own experiences with what it means to be subject to discrimination, etc., um, growing up, living with my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. Um, Anyway, another story. Well, I, tell I don't know if that's another story. That might have been what... Well, I tell some of it in the book. I tell one, one of my Yakima friends, a man named Jody Gowdy, he was chairman of the Yakima Nation for a while. He said, when you, uh, when this book, uh, when people pick up this book, they need to know who you are, where you come from, and why are you personally engaged with this, which that also really helped open my eyes about what it is that's going on when a person is reading a book, and who is the author, and what's their relationship, and so on and so forth. So I tell a little bit of my own story through that. Well, my ex- my particular expertise is asking unfair questions, especially when we only have a minute and a half before we have to take a break. Where do we go from here in terms of Indian relations in this country? Uh, well, I, I would say, I'd repeat what I said a minute ago, is to understand that they are not civil rights issues, that they're treaty issues, that these are, these are uh, don't collapse them. And, uh, you know, when I hear people celebrate, oh, it's wonderful, we have Native candidates running for Congress or whatever it may be, I think, you know, that's actually what the boarding school system, which most people are now aware of, was an atrocity. The boarding school system w- was aimed at that, uh, making people forget who they were and become U.S. citizens. Now, I'm not saying that Native candidates today forget who they were. I think quite the contrary. Deb Holland, for example, not a candidate anymore, but Secretary of the Interior, I think she knows exactly who she is. But we have to be very careful. The step forward is to begin to clarify that indigenous people's issues are separate from civil rights issues and that they are treaty issues and that at every step the treaty is the thing that should govern. Professor Peter Dorico, you're still an educator. I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, the name of the book, Federal Anti-Indian Law, The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples. Check it out with Prager or with Amazon or ask your local bookshop, your independent bookstore to carry it. That'd be a very good thing to do. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Buzz, thank you. It was great having a conversation with you. Really appreciate it. Okay, enjoy the rest of your day. You too. We are now going to have fair play right after these messages uh, with Duke Goldman, and we are going to be talking about whether or not minor leagues in baseball should be unionizing. It's going to be an interesting conversation. Stay with us. The Tinker, the Tailor, 
This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. They're seeking to draw me away from the roundness of life. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Eversource has filed new electricity prices for customers in Western Mass. The proposed basic service rate would increase approximately $0.06 per kilowatt hour. On average, a customer using 600 kilowatt hours would see an increase of 21% or approximately $39 per month on the supply portion of the bill. If approved, the new rates will go into effect on January 1st and last through June 30th. There is finally a decision in regard to the mask policy in Northampton Public Schools. The Northampton School Committee voted 8-2 to two in favor of adopting Department of Elementary and Secondary Education guidelines, which does not recommend a universal masking policy. The school had been following its own mask guidelines, causing a divide among some residents. Josh Silver, a member of the Ad Hoc COVID Advisory Committee, said a lot of time was wasted on this fight. The real shame in it is that our school committee needs to be dealing with so many important issues that relate to education and instead have literally been subsumed by this topic for well over a year. Silver praised the decision by the school committee and said it's a positive development in the collective effort to make sound policy that keeps our children safe. And authorities are investigating the cause of the fatal crash on Route 2 in Greenfield yesterday. Two pickup trucks collided, causing one of the trucks to catch fire, killing the 48-year-old driver from Shelburne Falls. The driver of the other vehicle, a Chevy Silverado, sustained minor injuries but did remain on the scene. Partly sunny this afternoon, a little breezy, a high of 40 to 44. Mostly clear tonight, evening temps in the 30s, overnight low of 18 to 24. Mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 40 to 44. Windy mix of sun and clouds in upper 30s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Hello everyone, Gordon Oliver here. So let's face it, our day-to-day lives always involve money, right? For many of us, money is always top of mind, but here at the Cambridge Connection, we want to help you reverse that trend. Every Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP, my co-pilot Tina Marie and I bring you a variety of amazing experts who can help you navigate that daily financial maze of life and guide you to a better relationship with your money. Tune in as Donna French of Almighty Pet Connect helps you avoid scam artists when you're finding your next pet or rehoming the one you have. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. 43 miles, Springfield to Greenfield, pushing empty shopping carts and broadcasting live, hearing the stories of how hunger impacts our valley neighborhoods and raising money for the Food Bank of Western Mass. The 13th March for the Food Bank is this Monday and Tuesday. Can we raise a half a million dollars in two days? Enough for two million meals? We can't do it without you. It's Monty. Join me, Andrew Morehouse from the Food Bank, Congressman Jim McGovern, and scores of others as we march. Go to montysmarch.com and support a team. Call the Food Bank phone bank while we broadcast and make a donation. Meet us on the road or pick up a Monty's mixed bag loaded with all sorts of goodies at State Street or Cooper's. 100% of your contributions are going towards 5,500 meals a day, every day, for a year. Listen live this Monday and Tuesday. This is what a revolution is all about. The River's support of the Food Bank is made possible by USA Waste and Recycling and UMass 5 College Credit Union. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome back, and thanks for joining us. I am so excited about this segment. It is Fair Play with Duke Goldman. Hello, Duke. Hey there, Buzz. I'm so interested in today's topic. Why don't you tell us about it and introduce your guest? Okay, so today we're going to talk about a recent development in baseball, professional baseball, but in this 
Today we'll be talking about minor league baseball because what happened in September is that um, the uh, minor league baseball is now going to be unionized. It is becoming part of the Major League Baseball Players Association, um, and Major League Baseball went along with it. So we are now sort of in a, an interregnum, a period where it's going to be figured out what's going to happen next and how what shape this is going to take place. And so we are going to talk today about the pros and cons of unionism for the minor leagues. And I, I have with us Bill Ryzek. And Bill is a, an author of 10 uh, uh, mostly sports books. I think he did one book that was not sports, right? Nine sports, seven baseball. Yeah. And um, Bill and I are going to have a dialogue about this and talk about what we think of it, what we think, you know, what, what, what is the purpose of it? What is the meaning of it? Why did it happen? Is it going to work? No hitting each other. Okay. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> so, so let's start. So Bill, what's your position on minor league unionization of ball players? Well, it's quite a number of questions. One is, are minor league players undercompensated? Is there a problem? And to what might be solutions to that problem? And in my opinion, if there is a problem, one, you, you, generally when you have a labor problem, it shows itself up, or a compensation problem, it shows up in shortages. You know, I'm involved in the hospitality industry. You can't find somebody to make beds, clean rooms, and what they've had to do is raise the compensation substantially, pay sign-on bonuses, pay all kinds of things to get people. There's no shortage supply of supply and demand. Exactly. There's no shortage of a supply of people who want to play minor league baseball. So do we say there's a, a salary problem? Certainly supply and demand would not indicate it was. Uh, the other side of the argument is they're having difficult lives. They don't make enough money to live comfortably. And the question is, what should compensation be? Uh, and I think Duke and I have a difference of opinion on here. And is it, it's your auditioning. It's not like working at Walmart. It's not like working for an insurance company. You're trying for something that will enable you to make a lot of money someday. And that's, you're willing to take that chance. And for a long time, I guess you could say that players just accepted that. Um, but the conditions, in some sense, grew st steadily worse. Or maybe society grew better and minor league baseball did not. And if you look at the compensation changes over time, well, certainly major league baseball, along with other major professional sports salaries, grew astronomically. But not just those salaries. Minor league baseball salaries have barely grown over the last 50 years, whereas the average person's salary in America has grown substantially more. So we are now at a point where minor league baseball players today are making substantially less than they were making, say, 30, 40, 50 years well, ago. So Duke Goldman, what is the relationship between major league baseball and the minor leagues? Well, that's not an easy answer. Um, Major League Baseball and the minor leagues have a codependent relationship, you could say. Major League Baseball today pretty much runs the minor leagues, but they run it in terms of um, the development arm of it. They fund it to a great degree, but there are separate ownerships. So the ownerships do not pay the development costs. Um, major League Baseball, though, orchestrated its own um, um, contraction of minor league baseball a couple of years ago. So they eliminated 42 teams. I think that's the right number. Um, so minor league baseball has now really under the aegis of major league baseball. And yet minor league players were not part of the major league union. And there was, uh, in the collective bargaining agreements, it was explicitly stated that these bargaining agreements that major league baseball players in their union were agreeing to would not affect minor league players. Um, and then there was a law which was passed, I believe, in 2018 called the Save America's Pastime Act. Congress passed this law saying that— I'm sorry, um, what year was that? 2018. Okay. And it was first brought up in 2016. Um, and in that act, specifically, it was stated that minor league uh, players would not be affected by minimum salary um, laws. Um, and 
from what I've read recently, this was in some ways a spurring on of minor league ballplayers saying, hey, wait a minute, why are we getting the short end of the stick? And this is what led to their organizing, which has culminated in more than half of them saying they want to be part of a union. And a decision was made that instead of starting their own union, they would become a more arm of the Major League Baseball Players Association. It's Dan. I have a question for you. Can you give us some numbers about how much somebody makes uh, and how, how long of a season do they have? Is they, it they play a five average? or six month season, and I mm-hmm. believe now the average salary, um, and it ranges. Sing, it a ranges, bit. right? From it, single A to yeah. triple A. If I can in, in, yeah. interject, some of the seasons are two and a half months. They have the number of short Correct. season leagues, they go from end of June till. Uh, end of September, and those are the lowest paid. Sure, players. and that's that's how long some careers were <laughs> in professional yes. baseball. But and, now and they're and saying it was five thousand two hundred dollars. It was a great summer for me, but that's what it was five thousand two hundred dollars. Well, let, let me let me inter- interject here too, because you're talking about players being underpaid, and we just had Buzz say it was a great summer for me. Is that because you made a lot of money? Actually, I lied. It was actually a disappointing summer for me. But D- disappointing. Yeah, I, I was able to afford dates. I was able to afford some good dates. I yeah. got a Pontiac Tempest out of it. And um, yeah. And I, I would pause. Although you were, you were in Mexico, right? So well, the dollar went a little farther. Thanks, Duke. <laughs> <laughs> and I, w- I would posit that most people playing in the minor leagues are not paying for the salary, particularly at that lower level, which is mm-hmm. the lowest paid level. It's, it's a summer tryout to see if you can get a shot at the brass ring. Get millions. And are they playing to try to get to the AAA, which would then make them visible to the major leagues? Like, are they, I mean, obviously they're playing to get to the major leagues. The AAA, it's often said that players at AAA level are the unhappiest in the minor leagues because they're often their contracts are down who are really unhappy that they're no longer in the major leagues or players that are all they want to do is get to the major leagues. And their contracts often are AAA contracts, right? At that, that level, and, yeah. And, yeah. and quickly, what does a AAA on average just arrange? What do they make? Because they play much longer than See, two what and I've, a half months. See, what I've been reading is the average minor league salary now is about $12,000, okay? AAA probably is more like, I'm going to guess, 20000 or so. Yeah. You got, Of course, you got a lot of AAA players on major league contracts. If they're on a major league yeah. contract, they're going to be making substantially more. Yeah. What What... Apparently, what they're saying is it would cost major league teams approximately $4.3 million per team if the minor league salaries were tripled, making them an average of thirty-five or so thousand dollars. And I and don't tr- see why that would be so difficult to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Yankees are going to pay $38 million a year or something like that for Aaron Judge. The but let me turn to Bill teams, and just ask Bill the question. And, and by the way... Dylan Hatch is here. He is was our intern. He's now an assistant for the program, and he's about to enter graduate school, and he's thinking about the labor studies department at either UMass or uh, I think you're looking at Cornell. You're looking at uh, uh, Rutgers, right, their labor center. Um, so we have somebody here who's about to commit his graduate studies to unionization. So what's wrong with when somebody is powerless, relatively powerless on their own, what's wrong with collective bargaining? Well, let me, let me close another solution here, is that Duke said $4.3 million per team. Now, you've got a union, a major league players union. That union consists of people who all, almost all, 99.9%, came up through the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. They identify with the minor leaguers. They're getting plenty of money. Yeah, that's not a problem. So if you've got the Major League Players Association taking in the minors and say, we're going to take four, a collection, everybody kick in $200,000 a year. Every player, you know, you got Aaron Judge making thirty-eight million. Let's do take the full full four point three million out of him, and we'll divide that up into the minor league player among minor league players, and it'll triple. And, and my feeling is, if you've got a union, the major league players union, saying this is an egregious wrong, you're in a position to fix that wrong all by yourself. If you choose not to, for self-interested motives, I don't think there's a real strong argument to, that someone else should be forced to do it. You can do it all within the union without doing anything. I see Duke, Duke's lips are moving. Well, interestingly enough, Major League Baseball has decided otherwise. They, they voluntarily went along with the minor league uh, players forming a union. Um, I think they decided, certainly from a public relations standpoint, it was a disaster for them not to go along with this. And there, there is a recognition. And I, I would 
dispute to some degree what Bill is saying. Sure, there are players that are doing this for a lark, players that are hoping for their big shot, players that do it as you know, uh, late teens, early 20s, do it for a year or two. But there are substantial numbers of players who are trying to support young families on these piddly salaries, and they can barely make it. Or in many instances, and in all my reading of baseball history, many players left baseball because they could not afford to continue playing. And what do you say to Bill's contention is there's no shortage of people who are aspirants who are willing to play? Um, Why should an employer have to pay more money than the market demands. What's your answer? Well, for one thing, Major League Baseball is a cartel. Players don't have other options, right? They can only go to the baseball system that exists. That's how it differs from other entertainment options, from other independent contractors. If you drive for Uber, you can also go drive for Lyft. Baseball players don't have that option. What's stopping someone else from starting a baseball league? Uh, you look at what's happened on the pro golf circuit. You've got this rival league that started up, and all of a sudden, you know, the prize money is being bid up. Uh, why not have the players' association form their own league and do whatever they want? Uh, notice that there's hasn't been such a league in over a hundred years, and. A large part of that reason is because 100 years ago, the brilliant jurist Oliver Wendell Holmes decided that baseball did not exist and it was not a part of interstate commerce. And therefore, baseball, the only sport out there, has an antitrust Before exception. we take a break, let's just the Sherman Antitrust Act clearly did apply, but in order to stretch to the point where Major League Baseball got an exemption, he actually argued that they only play in one park at one time, and therefore it wasn't interstate notwithstanding the fact that these teams cross state lines all the time to play each other. We're going to be back and talk more about the unionization of the minor leagues right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber and the new. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan, that's probably a good idea, too. Hit the ice all season long right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. Buy a mattress online? There are at least a hundred websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than pixels to know what it actually feels like? Maybe you could just lay on the screen and... Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Come to Talon Furniture and lay down on a Therapeutic. I'll leave you alone. You can see how you are together. Therapeutic mattresses are clean. No toxic off-gassing. I've been to the factory in Brockton. Yes, they're made by fellow Red Sox fans. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. Talon delivers and sets it up. We don't just drop a big burrito on your doorstep. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs. Talon Furniture, a real store just down the hill from Amherst College. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The HUG plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Frances Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at HUGYourMoney.com. 
This week's Shop Tuesday is Pristine Orientals. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Pristine Orientals releases gift certificates for their rug cleaning service. Pristine Orientals' chemical-free rug cleaning process leaves no odor and no residue. Your rug gets a gentle bath. It's really the only way to treat a rug. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Pristine Orientals Rug Cleaning, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5. The very lucky HMP. Buzz Eisenberg. I'm here in studio uh, with Bill Reisick and uh, the baseball author um, extraordinaire who's recently, I want to talk about your book, Bill, but we're with uh, Duke Goldman on Fair Play. You have a new book out. Is that it? Well, the most recent one I did was a biography of Dick Stewart, the old pirate slugger, Red Sox slugger from the 1950s and 60s. And what interested you in Dick Stewart? He was just a character. He was one of the most egotistical, bombastic, <clears throat> arrogant in a way people that you in baseball at that time, at a time when color was not considered a good thing. He was ahead of his time. He was... He was a large man, as I remember it. Large man, strong man. Uh, and if he was around today, people wouldn't worry about his strikeouts. He had the launch angle, and he had the personality for social media. He would have been great. At that time, he was not great. Just an interesting personality. Great slugger. Hit 66 home runs in the minor leagues. That was his claim to fame. And what's the name of the book? The book is called uh, Dr. Strange Glove, which was his nickname because he did not field very well. That was his other claim to fame. He, he led the uh, <laughs> National League in errors the first six or seven years of yes, his career. Yes, and, and, and he didn't even play every day, so it was a real accomplishment. <laughs> Where can people find the book? They can find it on Amazon, McFarland Pub. All, all of my books are published by McFarland, which is an academic press in North Carolina, McFarlandPub.com. And that's Bill Reisek. So, Duke, let's get let's back, gets back to minor league players. Or is, it, is it minor league players themselves or rep, their representatives who's pushing for unionization? It's a little bit of both. I mean, but apparently there it was a really good article on SI.com, sportsillustrated.com, about how this came to pass. And according to the author, it really kicked into overdrive. There there have been some minor league players feeling that they were not sufficiently compensated for many, many years. But after that act that I mentioned earlier, the Save America's Pastime Act, which apparently some of the players even objected to the idea that this, they're calling an act something that's, that's they're going to save America's pastime by making sure that minor league players are under underpaid. They didn't, they didn't like that. And it led to a lot of conversations and a lot of organizing so that, um, as well, when one of the former minor, minor league players, who is now a lawyer, a guy named Garrett Brocious, I think his last name is, um, brought a lawsuit against Major League Baseball for not compensating uh, minor league players, particularly during spring training, uh, Major League Baseball settled that lawsuit. Um, and that, I think, gave the minor league players to some degree some feeling that you know maybe there is some ability here to get more rights. You know, before we took a break, you mentioned, and I amplified in case listeners didn't understand, that the sort of quote-unquote exemption from the Sherman Antitrust Act um, that baseball has enjoyed for so many years. I remember when Marvin Miller came in, and he ultimately, many people attribute uh, the Major League uh, the Players Association uh, to the efforts of Marvin Miller. He talked a lot about that, Exemption. Why hasn't that been challenged all this time? It has been challenged again and again and again, and the courts have not overturned it. And they, there has been threatened threats for legislation to legislate it out of existence. And even now, supposedly, again, according to some of the journalists, there's some feeling that part of the reason Major League Baseball is going along with this union is they're afraid that the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to push through legislation that takes away their antitrust exemption. I, I agree with you 100%. I think that's why they did it. Because the, uh, over the last 100 years, you know, it's, it's, we go to a different sport, a punting contest, and every time it came into the courts, the courts would say, well, it's, it's something for legislation. And every time it came up in Congress, they'd say, well, let's let the courts decide. And it just went back and forth several times. But I think you know, in the major league, owners and commissioners knew it's flimsy. They've known it's flimsy since 1923, probably. 
And they were so afraid when Seller and his hearings came in, the Toulson case came up in the early 50s, they did everything they could short of hurting baseball or their interests to not upset Congress. And I think that was one of those things, I agree with you 100%, that's why they agreed to it. It's painless. It makes us look like we're not really bad guys. Let's do it. But I think it's going to have benefits. I think it's going to, for one thing, more players may be able to fulfill their potential because they can now feel like they can stay in it until they really find out if they're good enough for this. And they may play better under better conditions. I remember, well, and I talked about Marvin Miller just a moment ago, but I remember that the issue back then was the reserve clause. That is, uh, a player got to own, I mean, a team got to own all the rights to that player, which left the player with no negotiation power because he couldn't go anywhere else. He was stuck with that team. Um, and that then we got free agency, and we got all the rules that gives you you know amount of time before you are free to negotiate. Was envisioned for a minor league contract, collective bargaining agreement, same kind of thing. Would there be free agency at the end of a term? I don't know. I I doubt it. I think you know most of their you know efforts right now are going to be towards salaries and benefits and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, the players don't seem to be stuck in an organization as long. There's a lot of players getting called up. There's a lot of movement. It's not like the old days where I'd lock somebody up for 10 years in the minor leagues. You know, one thing we, we haven't talked about, Duke, is, um, Buzz, is, is this we talk about players being undercompensated in the minors. And I think it's those are the most, they're the most players are undercompensated, but the ones at the top are very well taken care of. They get bonuses when they get drafted and they sign. So the ones at the top are, are, are making good money. And, you know, that's the problem in Major League Baseball as well. You know, it's, the reality is the um, average salaries are much higher than the median salaries in Major League Baseball. And teams basically have sometimes as much as half their team making the minimum salary, which is not a bad salary. I mean, now it's something like $600,000. No. But it's for, you know, typically a, maybe a two, maybe three-year career. And then you've got a few superstars who are making millions and millions of dollars. Which is what the entertainment is. You've got people at the top. And, and it, mm-hmm. in the minor leagues, the, the reality is 90% of minor leaguers never play in the majors. And of that mm-hmm. 10%, many play for only a very short period of time. So they're really taking care of the top ones. And there's a, something out there called uh, what's it, Baseball Advance, uh, where you've got a former Phillies pitcher named uh, Michael Schwimmer who came up with a program and where they give money to these people. They give them a grant, say 400000 on the average, to a minor leaguer, and then they get a percentage of their earnings in return. So that, to me, is a good solution. It's a really subsidizing, like you subsidize people on the golf tour, uh, you get sponsors. We've been talking about Bill Ryzek. His book is about Dick Stewart. What's it called? Dr. Strange Glove. Dr. Strange Glove. <laughs> it's available on Amazon and other places. Duke, you've done it again. I, I don't know how we just spent so much time because I could go for another hour and talk about this. We didn't even touch on the Japan option for young players, but that's for another day. Uh, thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. Minor League Baseball unionization. Let's all keep it in mind and look into it. Meanwhile, have a great weekend, everybody. We will talk to you on Monday. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. Coming up. Monty's March for the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts. We'll be talking about hunger and food insecurity in Western Massachusetts and what you can do about it with Congressman Jim McGovern and Monty and Andrew Morehouse, the executive director of the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts, and Senator Joe Comerford. Please join us Monday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's